It was just on the introduction though. We're totally good still. Well, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. Um, so yeah, I'm back with my, uh, wonderful wife. And so we've been married for about two months now. And so the memories of wedding is still very fresh. And when you're getting married, you end up going to a number of parties. Uh, you end up at a engagement party. There's a number of uh, wedding showers, rehearsal dinner, reception. There are lots of parties involved in the wedding process. And if you've never thought about it, weddings or parties are just very interesting events. There's a host or at least somebody that everybody is there to see. And that person invites people from their various social circles. Some people form cliques and they stick with the people they're comfortable with. Other people jump from person to person and are the social butterfly that they are. That is not me. Uh, and this creates this weird interaction, this meshing of peoples who otherwise wouldn't really meet, otherwise wouldn't really talk to each other. Sometimes this goes really well and there's new friends. Other times, this just goes terribly. This passage is dealing with just that. It's a party that has turned disaster. So Luke sets the scene for us in uh, chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing uh, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, this story begins super abruptly. Out of nowhere, Jesus is just invited to this party with a Pharisee, and I promise you a wild party this was not. We know hardly any details about the event. Um, we don't even know who is there, really. Maybe the disciples were invited. Maybe other Pharisees were invited. Maybe it was a huge crowd. Maybe it was just a small circle of people. We do know that generally only the socially prolific were there. So... Think of this more as a fancy dinner party and less of a rager. But that's all the setup we get. Some people try to fill in the gaps using passages from Matthew, Mark, and John. There's a similar story with the uh, Mary and Martha and Simon the leper, but the stories are just too different. These are two different situations that are happening. Uh, and this is not the same Simon. We know so little about what is going on here, but I argue that's on purpose. Luke is doing this for a reason. He's leaving out details because he intends to fill them in later. And some other details he just doesn't think are very important. We really only need to know about three attendees at this group. There's a scoffer, a sinner, and a savior. Luke will go on to explain the identities and the interactions of these people and how this party just goes horribly off the rails. So 
First, he introduces our scoffer. This scoffer, we'll come to know him as Simon, is described as a Pharisee. And that's the only bit of information we're given about him. We learn a lot from that, though. As a Pharisee, he's a respected member of society. He's well-educated. He's well-liked. He has clout. Um, as a Pharisee, he's highly religious. He strives to uphold the law, and he takes pride in that. And that's all we really need to know. Luke's not casting judgment on him. We have some, some negative connotations with Pharisees because we kind of know the bigger picture. But Luke's not throwing any shade. He's just, um, he's just describing he was a Pharisee. Many Pharisees are not actually bad guys in the Bible. Uh, a few of them convert to Christianity. One of them writes a good chunk of the New Testament. Um, so him being a Pharisee isn't necessarily bad. It just tells us something about him. We now meet the next figure of our story, an unnamed woman. We're told that she's a sinner, that she is very well known in the community as being a sinner. We're not told exactly why she's earned this title, but it seems likely that she's known for certain services. Unlike the Pharisee, she is at the bottom of the social ladder. She's not religious, or maybe only marginally so. And she has with her this alabaster vial of perfume. Uh, it may say ointment. It, the word kind of varies, but uh, it's probably closer to, it's, it's designed to smell very nice and to be a way of honoring someone. A similar bottle found in uh, Mark and John costs around 300 denarius or 300 days labor as a contract worker. If you want to think of that as minimum wage, it's about $17,000. And these were incredibly uh, coveted in the ancient world. It might not have been worth that much, but at the very least, it cost her a little bit. Above all, what we need to notice about these two people is that they do not normally meet. This woman does not fit in at a Pharisee's dinner party. It is socially unacceptable for her to be there, and she would never be invited. Yet, this woman, finding out that Jesus is at that party, gets up immediately and goes to him. And what proceeds can only be described as weird. This woman walks into the room, probably dressed provocatively. People in the room will look over to her, recognize her, and then immediately give her a dirty glance. Maybe some of them are looking away in shame. She's not supposed to be there, but she's compelled to see Jesus. She walks over him, over to him, intending to honor him by putting oil on him. Jesus would have been laying on his side, so with his feet swung out as was Jewish custom at the dinner table, and his feet would have been readily accessible. But overcome with emotion, she began sobbing, drawing attention to the now escalating scene. As she sobs, she realizes that the tears are dropping on his feet, and she's trying to figure out something that she can use to dry up the tears, and she takes her hair, and she lets it down. It was probably up. And uh, 
she lets it down and uh, begins to dry his feet, which would have been incredibly disgraceful, disgraceful in a Jewish society. A woman like that is not supposed to let down her hair. So she's uh, shaming herself. She begins drying his feet off. She's kissing him. She's putting oil on him. This isn't so. Everybody in the room was looking at this event. Everybody saw Jesus in this wreck of a woman. And the weird thing, Jesus isn't trying to stop her. He's just letting it happen. And so we meet this, the last person in this story, our Savior, Jesus. So Luke tells us a bit more. Uh, Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, uh, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. We're given an insight into the thoughts of our host, Simon. And these thoughts introduce us to Jesus in the story. Upon seeing everything that's happening in his home and at his party, he does what most of us would probably do. He thinks to himself, what in the world is going on here? This guy surely isn't a prophet. Like, this scene isn't becoming of a prophet. If he were a prophet, he'd be stopping us. A good Jew isn't supposed to interact with a woman who is like this. And let alone, like, a prophet of God. Surely he should know. This shows Simon to be a skeptic, but I honestly don't blame him. Like, I'd be equally surprised by what was going on here. And I kind of expect that he'd be really upset and maybe embarrassed by the situation going on. He invited this prophet, a teacher, maybe just an interesting dinner guest. He never invited this notorious sinner, and he certainly didn't expect this scene. But Jesus, as Jesus does, has something to say about this situation. Knowing the thoughts of Simon, he speaks directly to him. I have something to say to you. Simon, who is ever a good host, graciously acknowledges him as teacher and lets him speak. Jesus now explains to him the reason for all of the tears. In verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. This is one of Jesus' easiest to understand parables. Many of them are lengthier and don't really tell you what they're about. But not this one. It's only two verses. And Simon tells us the meaning of it in the third. Jesus explains a very simple concept here. If a lender forgives one person of about two months in salary, and he forgives someone else of about two years in salary, the one who is forgiven for the more money is going to be more grateful. 
This is an obvious truth, which is why Jesus is telling it in parable format. He's laying out his principle in a way that Simon just cannot disagree with. And having laid out a foundation, he now turns to the woman. He intends to use her to set an example. Uh, in verse 44, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus is comparing Simon and this woman. Remember the very stark introduction to our story? There was no setup. That's because Luke was saving the details for the beginning of the party for this moment. He wants to make this contrast very clear. And so Jesus begins to compare the two. Simon doesn't offer Jesus any water to clean his feet when he arrived. But the woman did, in a roundabout way. Her love and gratitude towards Jesus produced tears that cleaned his feet. She even let down her hair to wipe them up. Simon didn't even bother giving him just a little bit of water. And Simon didn't greet his honored guests with a kiss. But this woman, upon seeing him, doesn't cease to kiss his feet. But And again, Simon didn't put olive oil, which is just dirt cheap in that region at this time, on his head to wash her hair, uh, wash, wash his hair. But she covers his feet in perfume. None of these acts were necessary for Simon to perform, but they were certainly performed for honored guests. In failing to do them, he shows himself as having no particular love for Jesus. At best, he really was just kind of interested in Jesus as a novelty. He was an interesting dinner guest. Simon fails to do the bare minimums to respect the guest in his own home. But this woman goes above and beyond when she has no social obligation to do so. She puts herself in an awkward situation. She sobs and draws uncomfortable uh, attention to herself. She lowers her hair and disgraces herself. And she uses a potentially very expensive bottle of perfume on him. She does nothing but attend to Jesus from the moment she gets there. And for this reason, Jesus has a message for Simon. The women's sins are forgiven. The Pharisee was right. Her sins are many. But she has been forgiven of them. And her love shows it. Compared to our Pharisee, like, like he's a proper Jewish man. He's uh, the he's the, supposed to be the righteous one. He relatively has lesser sins, but he doesn't love Jesus like she does, and he isn't a Christian. His actions prove it. He doesn't love Jesus. He doesn't even do the bare minimums for Jesus. He spends most of his time scoffing at him, going. 
surely you know what kind of woman this would be. And that's the last word Jesus has for Simon. Just that comparison. And now, for the first time, he turns his attention to the woman, and he speaks to her. Jesus will not just treat her as an object lesson. He cares for her and has something to say. In verse 48, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus proclaims that the woman is forgiven. It's hard to say all that Jesus intends to say here, but because we just don't know the circumstances of this woman. Is this the first time she's meeting Jesus? Has she only heard him from afar? Has she been uh, with him and the disciples for a while? We don't really know. But we do see at least a few things. And I want you to see at least three things that Jesus is doing here. One, he is giving her peace. Jesus is calming this poor woman. She's distraught, and he comforts her. He assures her that her sins have been forgiven. She knew her status before God. She knew that she was a sinner, just like everyone else did. But this woman had faith in Jesus' saving power. She had faith that he would save her. And that faith was not put to shame. Many people misinterpret this passage, uh, particularly some theologians of the Catholic Church. Um, They read verse 47. Her sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. And they think it's her love that saves her. They get really hung up on the word for. They think it as her acts of contrition, her weeping, her drying of his feet, her anointing, that is what saves her. But that interpretation doesn't take into account everything going around, going on around that verse. Jesus is pointing out the differences in the responses between these two people. That's the point of the parable. In the parable, the one who loves less is still forgiven of debts. The love resulted from the the forgiveness. It's not the other way around. With our Pharisee, we find that not only does he not not have love, but he also doesn't have forgiveness. He thought himself the best person in the room. Certainly, he was on better terms with God than she is. But his lack of love shows otherwise. Jesus, as he addresses the woman... He explains what saved her. It was her faith in him, which expressed itself as love. You see, love and faith will always be found together. When we recognize what Jesus has done for us, and we have faith in his saving work, we cannot help but love him. We love because he first loved us. Sometimes the love is little, and sometimes it's great but it's always there. Now, just as a cautionary, please don't make the mistake of looking at yourself and thinking that your love is little, 
therefore you are not saved. The other debtor was still forgiven, even if he only loved a little afterwards. The question you have to ask is this. Do you love him at all? The Pharisee didn't, but the woman did. But Jesus is not simply here to assure this woman. The next thing he intends from this is to completely and entirely change her social circumstances. Jesus shows that worldly status does not apply to the kingdom of God. She walked into the room as the least. Everyone's eyes were on her because they knew she was a sinner. Her identity was that she was a sinner. Everyone knew it. She knew it. But when Jesus speaks to her and says, the debt you had is gone, as she walks out, she is no longer, as this Pharisee said, a sinner. She's a saint. The Christian may still sin, but they are no longer reckoned to God as sinner. Now, Jesus has exalted her over this Pharisee. She loved him when the proper person didn't. At that table, the righteous person, Simon, was humbled for not honoring his guests. And this sinner is now exalted for her faith and love of Jesus. You see, what you once were has no business in the church. Past sins don't matter. Social class does not matter. If you have the forgiveness of Christ, you can stand as tall as anyone else in the room. You are equals in Christ. The lifelong Christian is no better than the Christian of a few weeks. In Christ, there is no distinction. But Jesus has one more thing to show us from this passage. And this final thing is simply himself. When the story began, he was a prophet, but not a very good one, and a teacher, but not an honored one. But Jesus continues to astound his hearers. He knew the thoughts of Simon. He knew exactly who this woman was, and he forgave her sins. In the church, I almost wonder if that loses its impact. Uh, we, we hear that, but it's old news. Of course Jesus forgives sins. That's what he does. But this isn't a small claim. Hear what he's actually saying. And notice that the woman did no ritual. She did no ceremony. There was no deed done to forgive her sins. Jesus isn't just a priest who follows a few rules and who can say that she is forgiven because she filled in X rule or Y rule. She, uh, Jesus isn't looking to some sort of ceremony or rule book to get his authority. He simply looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Not just some of her sins, not just some of the sins performed in the room, or against him, all of her sins. And who are these sins against? They were against God. Jesus, in forgiving her sins, shows that he can with certainty say who God has forgiven. 
And even further, he can forgive people for God. He is speaking on behalf of God. As we come to learn more over time, he can do this because he is God incarnate. This is early in his ministry, before many of his more famous miracles. Those at the table recognized what he had said, and they said to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? This is no ordinary prophet. This is no common teacher. This is the son of the living God, the word who speaks on behalf of him. This is God himself forgiving her sins. And so I conclude by asking you this. What has Jesus said to you today? Is he condemning you like the Pharisee and saying that you have no love and thus your sins are not forgiven? Simply humble yourself before Jesus with faith and his sin and uh, your sins will also be forgiven. Do you compare yourself to the woman and see that the flames of your love have died down? Have the one's warring flames now become a faint glow? Remember how much you have been forgiven of and stoke the fire of your love for Jesus. Or are you like this woman and just in need of encouragement of your standing before God? Hear him now and know that he forgives and exalts those who have faith in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to come together. Let your word work as you intend for it to. For those who are in need of assurance, Lord, grant it to them. For those who are in need of encouraging and emboldening, grant that to them. And for those who are in need of your saving grace, Lord, above all, grant that to them. Be with us as we go out in this week. Let us not be as Simon was, who was just maybe interested in you as a curiosity. But let us be like that woman who is there on the ground weeping. Let us have the love for you that she has for you. And let us go out in the world and let the world see our love for you. Please be with us this week and draw us back here uh, this coming Sunday. It's in Christ's holy and precious name which we pray. Amen. Thanks, Brandon. So I was, I was, as we were sitting there, I was thinking about, man, again, what a great text. Um, and here's the deal is I was sort of thinking to myself and I said, you know, the, the real reason is I always give Brandon and those other guys, those goofy texts is because I covet the good ones. Right. And I think to myself, like, as I'm, as you're preaching, I'm going, Oh, this text is so good. Like there's so much good stuff here that Brandon is, 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 is expounding on. And then I think to myself, I may never come back to this text. Right. And Brandon got to teach it and I didn't or whatever, but it was awesome. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, I, I love to hear uh, other people uh, bring the word and man, uh, what a beautiful passage of, of God's grace to us. And, and, um, you know, as, as you're talking about how, how faith and love, they always come together. And so the question that I asked myself is I said, 
well, so what do you do when you're the Pharisee? What do you do when you're the man who owned, who owed 50 instead of the man who owned, uh, who owed 5,000? And the answer is, man, we all owe 5,000. We just don't realize it, right? We come into it thinking we're the ones that owe 50. Um, but as we continue to seek after God and as we continue to read his word and recognize, um, I always say to people, as you, as you follow Jesus Christ, um, the perceived distance between you and him increases throughout your life. Now the actual distance is closing, I think, right? God is working in us and he's conforming us to his image and making us more like uh, Jesus. And so we are actually drawing closer and closer to Jesus as we go throughout our life. But most of the time it feels like we are getting further and further away because as he makes us closer and closer, we realize how far we have to go and how, what a distance it is uh, that, that Jesus has bridged between us and God. Um, and so, uh, again, thank you, Brandon. Um, beautiful passage. Um, and, 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 uh, thank you for, for expounding on it. Um, Brandon's prayed for us. So let me, let me just close this, um, uh, with our benediction. Um, again, uh, I appreciate uh, being able to call on, um, some of these guys. I've known Brandon for a lot of years and he has been a faithful, um, uh, servant in our church for, for a long time, and uh, I appreciate his his uh, coming in and, and taking a little bit of the load off. I was actually uh, before all this COVID stuff and all this stuff happened. I was supposed to be on vacation this week, and then the whole way the year has worked out just didn't happen. So, um, but but thanks for for preaching um, tonight, and I'll close this with this benediction. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.